Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Is the mic on? Is it working? Nice. Cool. Okay. Um, oh, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I don't want to say that because that's the thing to say out the front. Um, it really is. Uh, I do love coming back to to Atlanta. Um, this morning I woke up with. Um, what was that song? Uh, not Boing Boing, the other one. Who um, <laughs> <laughs> started with Boing Boing? That was the first thing in my head this morning. Uh, and I do love, really do love coming back here. It's fantastic, really a, a special place for me to come back. Uh, so thank you for having me um, again. Uh, this morning we are carrying on um, our series in Mark's Gospel, um, thinking about Jesus' teaching for our lives. Or, or what has Jesus got to say about our lives according to Mark. <laughs> uh, so that is um, kind of where we're, we're going this morning, what we'll be thinking about. Um, and I wanted to start by showing you a little illustration. You've probably seen it before, you may have seen it before. Um, I've kept this in my car for about a week, so it's been a little bit suspicious, just kind of keeping a boat in my car. Um, but um, what I want you to imagine is that this rope um, just goes on forever. Um, it doesn't end by the piano, it, it carries on. It goes into the cupboard and, and through the kitchen and down the street and, and on and on and on this rope goes. Um, and now what, what I want you to imagine is that this rope is a timeline uh, of your life. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, and this black bit here at the start is your life on it. And then the rest of it, forever, is your life spent somewhere else. Um, Everyone you've ever met, uh, everyone you've seen on television, every person you've walked past in the street uh, will spend an eternity somewhere. And the Bible teaches that what you do in this bit determines the rest of it. Like everything else pivots on what you do in this short life on earth. And so in light of all of this... <laughs> How are we going to live here? What, what are we going to do with our lives here in light of the rest of eternity? And that's kind of what I want us to think about this morning. How are we going to live in light of eternity? The word that kept on coming back to me as I was preparing for this morning uh, is the word captivated. Are we captivated by Jesus? Is, is he something that we merely do on a Sunday or Wednesday? Or is he someone that captivates us? Are we smitten by Jesus? And so I want us to, to think about that this morning. In light of all of eternity, who is Jesus to us? Uh, and then, how are we going to live? What are we going to do about him? But how is he going to affect my life? And so there's three things that I want us to look at this morning from Mark's Gospel, three different parts of it. Um, I'm basically highlighting three different things, uh, three facets of the Christian life, or three different characteristics of what it means to walk with Jesus. In light of everything the Bible teaches, and in light of eternity, what has Jesus got to say about my little life on it? And so there's three things that I want us to think about. The first thing is simplicity. What does it mean to live simply? The second thing is humility. How do we live humbly? And the third is reality. Simplicity, humility, and reality. Those are the three things we're going to be thinking about this morning. 
Um, and so if you do have a Bible, uh, let's jump straight into to Mark's Gospel. Um, and I want to start in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, oh, not Jesus, Mark <laughs> says, uh, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So, in light of eternity, live simply as children of God. That's what we're called to do, to live a life of simplicity. Jesus says in verse 15, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. Those are some strong words from Jesus. First of all, the kingdom of God is something to be received. It's given to you. In other words, you don't work for it. You may think, well, that's Christianity 101. <laughs> that doesn't need to be mentioned. That's quite a simple thing. Uh, but that's why I'm mentioning it here. It's a very simple thing. Paul says in Ephesians that it's by grace through faith and not of works. It's a very simple thing to receive something. You may have heard the illustration before of, of the thief on the cross. And imagine, you know, Jesus uh, says to that man, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, imagine that man on that same day walking up to the gates of paradise. And there is an angel waiting for him, or St. Peter or, or someone. And the angel asks him, uh, what are you doing here? And the thief says, oh. And the angel says, well, have you ever been to church? I've never been to church. <laughs> you ever been to a Bible study? Never been to a Bible study. You ever been baptized? No, never been baptized. Uh, and the angel keeps on asking these questions to try and figure out why he's there, and eventually he just says, "Well, how are you here then?" And the thief says, "Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> That's it. That's the only answer he could have given. The man on the middle cross didn't even know his name. He said I could come. It's a very simple thing." to receive something. Isaac Watts put it like this, that the best obedience of my hands, that's interesting, isn't it? My best 15 minutes of my life, <laughs> the best act of faith or obedience I've ever done, cannot get me into heaven. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before your throne, but faith can answer your demands by pleading what my Lord has done. So first of all, the kingdom of God, very simply, is something to be received. But Jesus doesn't, just, Jesus doesn't just say that. He says it's to be received like a little child, meaning that it could be possible to receive it wrongly. It's to be received like a little child. Now, parents in the room can probably add to my list of what a child is. Probably not all nice words, maybe, I'm assuming. Um, but children, they're dependent, aren't they? They need you. They're incredibly trusting. You can tell them anything, usually, and children will believe you. They're excited about the most simple things. I think, in a word, we could say children are simple. And this is what Jesus desires from his followers. Jesus desires simple, childlike trust. Not a, not a blind faith, 
not a childish faith. There's a difference between childish and childlike. It's not a blind faith, but it is a simple faith. And so what does it mean to live simply? What is Jesus teaching here as he uses this picture of a child? I mean, he's the one who created everything. Why would he use children? Well, Jesus wants us to see that to live in simplicity, and in a very broad sense, I haven't got specifics here, but in a very broad sense, to live simply means to believe and live as though everything you have, whether it be good or bad, has been given to you by your Father. And everything you don't have, whether it be good or bad, that job that you prayed for and didn't get, or the help that you're struggling with, or, or a number of other things, everything that you don't have has been kept from you by your loving Heavenly Father. And every desire <clears throat> and every need you could possibly have could be given to your Father in prayer. Paul writes to the Philippians, and he gets to chapter 4, and he says, um, I know what it's like to have plenty and to have little, to be well-fed and to go hungry. And he says, and I've learned a secret. <laughs> I've learned the secret of being content. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do everything that God requires of me, because the one who requires me to do something is the very one who provides everything that I need to do it. I can do everything through Christ, because he meets every one of my needs. It's the fact that you accept everything, whether it be good or bad, because it comes from your heavenly Father. Or to put it another way, it comes from the very hands that were nailed to a cross for you. That's what it means to live simply, to accept everything as coming from your heavenly Father, to be so captivated by the God who loves you that you're content with everything else, to be so captivated by God that you are content with everything else. So I, and I think a life lived simply will result in a life of humility. Uh, just turn the page over to Mark chapter 10 again, uh, verses 35 to 45. It says, Then James and John, some of Jesus' disciples, uh, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And, those, uh, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, in light of eternity, don't just live simply as children of God, but live humbly as servants of God. What does it mean to be great? 
that was the question that James and John were asking one day, and then you can imagine them talking, can't you? What, what does it mean to be great? What is greatness? And, and to be fair to them, they kind of come up with the right answer. Uh, they, they go to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's a cheeky question, isn't it? <laughs> but Jesus, in his gentleness, in his, in his lowliness, he says, Well, what do you want? And they said, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, fair play, they got that bit right, almost. <laughs> you know, they didn't put greatness with Caesar. They didn't put greatness amongst them. They didn't put greatness in any other political or, or, or social influence. Greatness belongs to Jesus. They got that bit right. But for all their good theology, <laughs> they're totally wrong, aren't they? Where Jesus, Jesus calls the disciples again to them, because, well, the disciples are indignant, thinking that they wouldn't ask the same thing, but of course we can imagine they probably would have if James and John hadn't gotten there first. So Jesus calls all of the disciples together, and he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You notice the assumption that Jesus is making there. He assumes that all of us want to be great. Because he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Jesus didn't say, and if you don't want to be great, then don't bother serving anyone. <laughs> he wouldn't have said that. His assumption is that all of us, in one way or another, want more. <laughs> or we want some level of greatness in one way or another. And Jesus is saying, look, the way up is down. The way to greatness is humility. If you want to be great, you must be the slave, the servant of all. The way up is down. That was the opposite of what James and John wanted, wasn't it? <laughs> the opposite of probably what we want. I mean, really? I, if I want to be great, surely I go to the government. Surely I go to the king. Surely I do something that, that influences my, my influence on, on others. Jesus is saying, no. no the way up is down. How do we live humbly? How, how do we practically live humbly in our lives? I think C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. You know, maybe walking around thinking, oh, I'm so small, I'm so weak, I'm so needy. Maybe humility could look like that, but C.S. Lewis says that's not ultimately what humility is. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. To wash feet, to outdo one another in showing honour, to put yourself last, to die to yourself. What are we doing to serve other people? What are you doing to serve others? That's a challenging thing, isn't it? Because we can hide behind maybe ministry, we can hide behind certain aspects of our lives. But when it comes down to it, what am I doing? What are you doing to serve other people? It is a challenging thought, at least for me. And Jesus then points to himself as the example. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's what some people have called the double dip. Remember those sweets, the double dip? The Son of Man, he didn't come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served, surely it's Jesus, right? If, surely if anyone had the right to, to expect service, it was the Son of God. He said, I haven't come to be served, but to serve. I've been brought low to serve. And not only that, and I've given my life 
as a ransom for many. It's the double death of Jesus. And again, we see it in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death. This, this double death of Jesus. So where does motivation to serve come from? How, how, what, what would give me the motivation to put myself last and wash all your feet? <laughs> yeah, I think it's in that word captivated. To be so captivated by the God who died for you, that you want to serve as he did. See, that's the, that's the true Christian response, isn't it? That others may hear, Jesus died for me? <laughs> Great, cool. Um, Jesus loves me? Fantastic. I love me as well. <laughs> and then leave it at that, and you go unchanged. The Christian, the true Christian, will say, if Jesus died for me, then nothing I have is truly mine. Nothing I have belongs to me. David Livingstone, the missionary out in Africa, um, he, he was once at a, a conference, I think it was, and he got to the, the Q&A session at the end, and one of the students came up to the mic and asked him, uh, what was it, or what is it about Jesus that makes you want to give up everything? What is it about Jesus that, that makes you want to sacrifice so much, to sell all your possessions and live in, in, in a rural place in Africa and to give up, to lay down your life? What was it? about Jesus to make you sacrifice so much. And David simply says, I never made a sacrifice. C.T. Studd said that if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make. See, the logic there is that there is far greater glory waiting you and me. That we couldn't possibly give up and serve the weight of glory that is waiting for us. There is a far greater treasure in heaven for you and for me that we can freely lay down everything else. I never made a sacrifice, said the man who sacrificed everything, because I've got a far greater treasure waiting for me. Jesus says in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Nothing's ever truly yours until it's given away. So simplicity, humility, and then finally, reality. Where is the reality of God in your life? In, in light of eternity, do you really view your life as this? Like, sometimes, you know, we get so caught up in this, don't we? We think that this is it, but there's all of that. Where is that a reality in our life? Turn again to, to Mark chapter 4, um, just back a couple of pages and verse uh, 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. And a furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified 
and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In light of eternity, we are called to live as God's people in God's world. We're at the Sea of Galilee in this passage, and I'm sure you're very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. The disciples certainly were uh, experienced fishermen. They get on this boat, and they, Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side. So they get in the boat, and off they go. Uh, and, and at some point, this boat with Jesus and some experienced fishermen come into a bit of trouble. A big storm comes up. Now, the, the geography of the Sea of Galilee is quite interesting. It'd be so low and surrounded by quite high mountains. There's usually a lot of uh, atmospheric pressure and, and the temperature changes and all of that. I'm not a geologist, as you can tell, or whatever it would need to be. A biologist, I have no idea. Um, um, and a quick storm comes up. And so the disciples, you can imagine the panic they're in, can't you? That the, the, the waves breaking into the boats, they're thinking it's going to sink, we're going to drown. And they, go, they turn to Jesus, and what's he doing? He's asleep. Maybe our Lord was a deep sleeper, I don't know. Um, and they go to him, and they say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care, Jesus? Don't you see me? Don't you hear my prayers? Don't you understand what I'm going through? Don't you see my suffering? Don't you care if we drown? The disciples are filled with fear. And Jesus gets up and he says, quiet, be still. Not to the disciples. To the storm, quiet, be still. Someone likened it once to someone saying to a dog, sit. <laughs> and it sits. <laughs> and it's quiet. <coughs> There's a supernatural calm. Not even, not even a, a, a light wind. And he turns to the disciples, he says, do you still have no faith? Or, or, or another translation could be, where is your faith? Where is it? That teaches us something quite important, I think, just as a bit of a tangent. It's the object of our faith, not the quality of it, that saves. Where is your faith? Jesus didn't ask, how strong is it? How great is your faith? How many doubts do you have? He says, where is that mustard seed of faith? Imagine if you were uh, falling off a cliff. Maybe not a nice thought experiment, but just bear with You're falling down this cliff, and sticking up the side is a little branch. How much faith do you need to have in the branch in order to grab hold of it? You know, you may be thinking, mm, I don't know, I'm having some doubts, it's probably not going to hold my weight, so I'm not going to bother. You wouldn't do that. You'd think, this branch may save me, and you grab it. Your faith has nothing to do with the strength of the branch. It's nothing about the quality of your faith, but the object of it that saves. Jesus says, where is your faith? And the disciples response, this is what I want to focus on. Jesus has just saved the disciples from almost certain death by this storm. And you can imagine, probably, the disciples, surely they should have started celebrating, high-fiving each other, having a big group hug. Surely they should have started partying on this boat. And they were terrified, says Mark. They were terrified. And they said, who is this man? See, the focus is no longer on the storm. The focus is now on Jesus. The reality that the disciples suddenly clicked to, that their, their whole worldview shift is that the one in the boat is more powerful than the storm outside. Who is this man who may now be again sleeping on a cushion 
who just told the waves to shush, and they shushed. Who is this man? This fear that the disciples have. It's an interesting thing, the fear of God, because it's not a fear of judgment that we're told to be afraid of. We're not told to be afraid of God. But we're told to, with the disciples, go, who is this man who is so fearfully good, who is so amazingly loving? They are captivated by an awesome God who is so gentle enough to still their fears. So powerful, so awesome, and yet so good. In his book called uh, Rejoice and Trembling, Michael Reeves put it like this. He says that this fear that we're talking about, the fear of the Lord, is not the dread of sinners before a holy judge. It's not the awesome, it's not the awe of creatures before their tremendous creator. But it is the overwhelmed devotion of children, marveling at the kindness and righteousness and glory and complete magnificence of their father. So, how does Jesus want us to live? In light of all of eternity, how are we supposed to live? Again, coming back to that word, to be captivated. So, so thrilled by Jesus that we are willing to live simply, to have a basic life, to know that everything that we have and everything that we don't have is the result of our loving Heavenly Father. To be so captivated by Jesus that we are willing to serve others in humble devotion to one another. And to be so captivated by him that we rejoice and tremble, that we fear him as our gentle, loving Father. Let's pray as we finish. Father, thank you for this time that we can spend together as your children, as your people. Thank you that we can gather in this way and just be uh, reminded of these simple and yet amazing truths that, Lord Jesus, you, you call us to a simple life, a life of simply trusting our Heavenly Father, to, to look up as a child to their Father and expect uh, you to provide for every one of our needs. Lord, give us that faith that childlike faith, we pray, to depend more upon you and help us then too to serve others, to humbly devote our lives to service to one another. Thank you for this church. Thank you that it is a church that does that. And we pray that it would be more so, that Lord, you would increase the service and the love in this church. And we thank you too, Father, that you are so awesome and so great and yet so gentle. And you invite us to a reality that fears you, but it fears you in a way that is so wonderful and so good. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fear you and to love you more as we go into our week this week. In Jesus' name, amen.